if you have the natural capacity to transfer games easily, like very high acetylcholine level, athletes who can very easily take the gains they make in a gym and transfer that on the field, well, you, you only need two stations because transfer is easy for you. You might not even need to do a complex, but the reality is that many athletes are not that gifted when it comes to transferring the gains they make in a gym to the field. They will need more station in the complex or periodizing their complexes. That was Christian Thibodeau, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the, the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, simplyfaster.com also has B strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here with us. Our guest today is Coach Christian Thibodeau. Christian has been a multi-time guest on this podcast and is one of the world's pioneers on training individualization, training methodology, pretty much you name it. Christian has an extensive library of knowledge on so many things training. His first several episodes on the show, he went into his neurotyping system and athlete individualization on a high level. More recently on the show, we've been talking about concepts uh, regarding training arrangement, training methods, what types of sets are you using in the weight room, isometrics and eccentrics, and how to arrange that differently for athletes than you might for a person who is simply seeking strength and muscle development. On today's show, I'm going to ask Christian a lot of questions on power training complexes. Power training complexes like mixing a squat with a depth jump or French contrast training, which many of you listening have likely heard about. Basically, Basically, just mixing a heavy movement with a fast movement and everything you could possibly do on that spectrum is a really powerful training tool, but it really helps us when we can have a coach who knows all the methods tell us what method we actually should be using for the athlete in front of us. It's so tempting to try to use just to just grab the method that we think is going to deliver the, the maximal result right now. But the problem is, is where do you go from there? Where do you go if you've used up all the fanciest complex training methods when an athlete's 17 years old or even in a four-year college uh, training span and an athlete is a fre- an athlete is a freshman? 
These are really important things to consider, and it's really important to consider individual athlete response when asking these questions, looking at power and complex training. So on the show today, Christian is going to get into his ideas and theory and his ideas and philosophy around power training complexes. He's also going to be talking about the possibility of utilizing sports skills in that power training framework. But just as importantly, he is going to be talking about when to use these complexes, how to periodize them, when to assign them in the long-term framework of an athlete's overall development. Towards the end of the show, Christian will spend time talking about the training stimulus and how to create the purest possible adaptation while having the minimal amount of noise in the system. And finally, he'll end with a description of his double and triple progression strength systems that offer a very simple and clean strength stimulus with a very small amount of noise, uh, very similar to some other uh, like like slow burn one by 20 type uh, training stimuli we've also talked about on this show. This was an incredible show. And one of the most, um, the things I appreciated the most was that it was almost just as much about what not to do as what to do. And in times like these, you can go on any outlet and get tons of things to do. But we just so much, uh, I think we could benefit so much from the wisdom of brilliant coaches who have, who know all the methods, have done it all, have worked with a, such a broad spectrum of individuals and can tell us what's optimal for that athlete in front of us. I'm so appreciative to have Christian back on the show. And I know you guys are going to love this episode. Let's get into episode 272. Christian, it is awesome to have you back on the show. Could we start by maybe chatting a little bit? I think it's been about a year since we last talked. I'm curious uh, what you've been learning uh, from your children in terms of athletic development. I've enjoyed watching my children run and jump and jump off of things and um, just any developmental insights from uh, watch, well, being a dad now. Well, of course, the, the first thing, well, I, I can't really talk about like Madison because Madison is only seven months old, but what I've been like seeing with Jaden uh, and it kind of like confirms what I've been like thinking about with the, the neurotyping system that a large part of your behavior or your potential behavior or your potential uh, psychological profile is actually based on genetics because I'm looking at Jaden and he is basically a carbon copy of my own behavior and not my behavior right now. The behavior I had when I was a kid, it, it, it's, it's freaky out exactly like I am he is. Uh, like he's extremely uh, not shy, but he observes before being able to interact with people. He will only interact with people if the topic or the situation interests him. And when he's into something, I mean, you cannot distract him with something else. Uh, and he is extremely explosive. He jumps all the time. So that's pretty cool. And just like me, well, even though I played football, I'm not a, a, a team sport guy. And you can see that Jaden is not a team sport guy either. Uh, he, he loves to run, loves to jump, loves to like, kick the ball and stuff like that. But he doesn't like interact as a team as much. I mean, you will learn it because I learned it also. And even like the way he eats, it's exactly the same as when I was a kid. I had problems with food, but was basically living on yogurt. That's pretty much what he does. So, it, and these are patterns I had when I was a kid growing up, not patterns I have now. So. It, we can't say that you learned that from watching me, okay? So there's definitely a genetic like, portion to our personality. So that's something I've been like really, it's been really cool to see that it kind of confirms what I've been uh, teaching all these years. So that's pretty much what I've learned this year with my kids. 
Yeah, we'll have to check back in in 10 or 15 years and see what sports he ends up in. I, I'm fascinated just because my kids, they're night and day in terms of their wirings with, with movement. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter is the individual sport type. Like she likes to run. Like she'll just keep running like distance wise and in the pool, she'll try to swim down to the bottom and fish out like rings and hold her breath really long. Like she likes physical yep. challenges. But when it comes to like social situations and a ball going around, like she's my son is good at that. And he he loves that kind of thing. It's still be interesting to see what they're you know, if that sticks or stays as you they know, develop and go along. One thing that actually I'm, and it's actually not related to sports at all. But one thing I'm curious to see is if Madison, because she's like super young now, so she's basically just sit there and just be crawl a bit. But when she gets older, I'm eager to see if she instinctively wants to play with dolls or play with trucks. Because Jaden like has literally all the trucks. I mean, seriously, <laughs> like, like have two coffers full of trucks. And that's basically all there is at the house. And I want to see if she's naturally attracted to them or she wants to play with more like what we associate with girls' toys. Because I have some, some theories about that. Because I want to see if uh, there's a difference between what girls and boys naturally like when it comes to playing and toys or if it's just because, you know what, that's what's around in the house. That's what I want to play with. So that's something I'm, I'm eager to see as both grow up. Yeah, I can tell you just now, not to not to make this all about child psychology, but my my daughter's five, my son's three, and she she doesn't you know has never been into trucks or anything. I mean, a little bit. Like if Ian, my son, has a truck, she might mess with it or a little bit. But my son, he will play with her toys a little, but will not. He doesn't get that excited. Like he'll play a little bit with her toys, but yeah. he is excited about trucks. He's excited mm-hmm. about dinosaurs. It's just like if he yeah. could have yeah. one or the other, he will. He will take the the boy, you know, whatever. The, but if it was all her toys, I I do wonder what he would do with it. It'd be interesting. And I'm to really see. curious about that. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just ask you too. Like my my son is like my kids were jumping off the stairs the other day. Like early neurotyping, right? Like when do you when can you start to see these pieces of the personality yeah. that might fit with you know whatever their training preferences? But like my son, who's three, will jump off the fourth stair, the fifth stair, and like he want he wanted to jump down from a five foot tree branch over some roots into the grass. I had to catch him. Like I his, he, he didn't understand, like he just has this risk and will do it. Uh, whereas my daughter is much more risk averse than that. Like she wouldn't jump from the forest stair. She's older and bigger. And so I wonder like, are you seeing like, like children who take on risk, who like want, who are like, enjoy that. Do you feel like that could be an early like sign of some of these things that we're seeing in the brain that might be more like a, like that one B explosive risk taking type. Or, I mean, I guess it's, I believe so. I believe so. And it's funny you mentioned it because uh, my, uh, my, my, uh, my friend, uh, my neighbor, uh, he's a doctor, has two kids, one's uh, two and one's five. And they were playing with Jaden and they were playing on uh, like a truck and they were like on uh, the platform behind the truck, which is about like, let's say, maybe three feet high. And Jaden jumps and lands because he does gymnastics. So he has the mechanics all figured out. And then yeah, the younger kid, uh, my neighbor, like two, he just runs and he jumps in the air and his father catch him because the guy was like going sideways and it was about to fall on his head. And the older one just wouldn't go down. I mean, he had to be picked up even though he's five. And from what I'm seeing, it's quite possible. Like you can see that some people would be maybe not risk aversive, but like more of an arm avoidance personality mm-hmm. profile. And it would actually fit with, like, I want to like run nonstop. I'm doing um, like, running by myself, swimming by myself, challenges, but challenges that are more 
uh, under control because it's something that they know they're good at and it's not something that can be dangerous for their body. Yeah, that's, I, I kind of, my if I put my track and field hat on, I think of um, Adarian Barr and I had a talk about uh, maybe uh, two months ago, a little bit more on just like collisions and track and like a javelin thrower who's got to stick that block leg out and, and just has this massive collision on it. And there is like risk in that, in the sense of that's not an average, if an average person off the street tried to emulate that to a T, well, one, their brain wouldn't let him do it. But mm-hmm. like some of these like higher uh, coordination athletic movements, I, I almost view them as having like an element of risk. Like it's a risk to put your body in this position, but your brain will save you. But like it takes, I don't know, I just kind of feel like there might be some of that in there, you know, like, like risk and the ability to get into really athletic type positions. Ball vaulting is the same way. Yeah. Oh yeah, pull, yeah. Pole vaulting is a uh, that was. I wish that was like the lost event. I wish I would have done in high school. I I, I started at like twenty four. I was like, this is the best event ever. It's just a little bit too late for me now. But I would probably have tried to throw the pole instead of jump with it. <laughs> I would have liked to see that. It's good for yeah. Get frustrated. You can chuck it. So I mean, you could have thrown it a long way. That's my limit. Uh, all right. So. The main theme of this show today, I, I was going back through one of your old books and just thinking about all these power complexes that you've written. And when I was going through your neurotyping course, one of the things that I just loved was like you wrote all these complexes and all these training complexes. I was like a kid in a candy shop going through all this stuff. And I'd like to uh, just chat today about uh, complexes and power development. And I know we've spoke a little bit about that in the past uh, with the neurotype stuff and various things, but I'd love to dig into that more specifically today and i'd love to start with something you mentioned before we even started the show which is um introducing sports skills specifically into power complexes like like complex training so could you chat with where you're heading with the complex training and specific sports skills well first okay just just so that people know what we're talking about complexes basically refer to uh it's you have two types of complexes right you have the barbell complex that you see in crossfit like you're doing eye pole, power snatch, power clean with the same bar, for example. Uh, a complex uh, in strength training refers to using two, three, four, or even five movement pa- variation of the same movement pattern at various speeds and various loads. For example, you could combine a back squat with a jump squat, which would be the same similar movement pattern, but with different load profile. You could also do a top half back squat from pins, an overload, and a depth jump, for example. So you're you're targeting the same movement structures, pretty much the same type of joint angles, but again, with different load and speed profiles. So that's what we mean when we talk about complexes. And contrary to what you see, for example, in bodybuilding, when you combine two exercises, it's important to have uh, almost or even complete rest period between both stations because you don't want fatigue to become a problem, right? Anyway, the, the, the goal is to both have a potentiation effect. So one exercise will potentiate the other and potentiation will last for uh, at least five minutes. So there's no reason to take like 30 seconds rest. And, and also there's a psychological benefit. For example, if you've done a top half back squat and then you have to do a regular back squat or a barbell jump squat, the load will feel lighter. And the simple fact that it feels lighter, it makes you more confident and you will actually produce more force when you do the exercise. Uh, and finally, it's to learn to, apply, to, for example, use the strength movement. You use it to, yes, increase strength, but also increase the sensitivity of the, 
a neuromuscular junction and the, the strength of the excitatory drive of the nervous system. But more importantly, then you follow it by an exercise that you are using to build speed or power or even a sports skill. So the closer both movements are together, the more the brain will connect both and it's easier to transfer the gains from the strength or power movement to the sports skill or uh, the, um, the, the fundamental, fundamental movement. Uh, so that's what we mean with, with complexes. Now, I've been using complexes since I've been training, basically, because uh, my, 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 the first strength coach I had, which was my high school football coach, he always had us do complexes uh, one phase out of three in our training program. So let's say we would have in the year three uh, macro cycles, well, we would have three phases of four weeks with the complexes in there. So I remember distinctly, I mean, it was our blue book that was, we call it the blue book because it was blue. The cover was blue. It was a training program. And the last phase was always a back squat and jump squats with 20% of what you use on the back squat, uh, deadlift and hang power, power clean from the hang. And then it would be bench press and medicine ball throws. Uh, and then it would be uh, chin-ups and med medicine ball slam on the floor. So uh, we were doing that like 25, 30 years ago. So, so that's, I've been doing that for a long time. Now, I, and as I grew up as a strength coach, I began to push the concept of, com of complexes further using three stations, four stations, five stations. At first, it didn't have that much rhyme or reason except that I want to hit as many points in the force velocity curve as possible with the same movement pattern. For example, I remember a complex we would do top half back squats or an overload for three reps, then back squat. Then we would do a power snatch from the hang or power clean from the hang, depending on the person. Then jumping jump squat with 20% of max squat and then a vertical jump or depth jump, depending on the capacity of the athlete, always with three minutes rest between exercises and up to five minutes between sets for about three sets per workout. That was a hefty load. And honestly, few people can actually do that because the neural, neural demands are just humongous, right? That's one of the issues with complexes is that they will raise adrenaline more than pretty much any training method you can find which is actually a benefit in the short term because by raising adrenaline in the short term, you actually increase performance from set to set, uh, even though you have some fatigue going on. Uh, the downside of that is that the more adrenaline you produce in training, the more likely you are to suffer from training burnout. So either by down-regulating your beta-adrenergic receptors in your brain, in your muscle, in your heart, which will decrease performance and motivation, or by creating systemic fatigue in your, in your nervous system. So when you do complexes, I found out that it's much better to stick with two stations or sometimes three. But when you do that, the overall workload of the session and even the week need to be much lower. Now, the way you use complexes, the, the reason why we are using them it's because you want to take one physical capacity and transfer it to another one that is already connected, but you want to facilitate the transfer. For example, we know that power, okay, it's, it's a mix of strength and velocity. So if you work on your strength, you increase maximal strength, in theory, you will increase your power output. But in reality, it doesn't always work like that. 
In fact, it rarely does. If all you do is the strength work, very few people can actually increase their power as much as they could. Okay? You, they need some power work in there. Now, I found that if you separate both, like I have one strength day and one power day, which I also done, well, most people won't be able to transfer the, the capacity of the muscles to produce force. Because even though it looks like two different things, like a heavy squat jumps, both rely on one thing, and it's the capacity of the muscle to produce force. The difference is when you're lifting heavy, you produce force slowly, so you have a lot of time to develop that force. But when you jump, you have a very short window to apply as much force as possible. So you need the foundational strength, but then you need to learn to apply that in fast movement. And I found that combining both together, when you want to transfer, I mean, if you want to develop maximum strength, well, train strength by itself. But when you want to, I already have a good foundation of strength. Now, what I want is not to push it further, but that much further. If I'm squatting, 2.5 times body weight, I don't need to get any stronger, regardless of the sport, okay? So maybe some exceptions, like football, but very rarely, okay? So or even 2.25 pounds body weight. But it's, I have enough strength. I have developed strength with the early portion of my macro cycle or my prep period. Now what I want is to take the strength that I have and learn to apply it as fast as possible. Being able to use as much of that strength as possible to apply it in a very short time frame that is available when doing fast movements. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to combine both. So you are doing the strength movement, then you do the explosive movement, and your brain will learn to apply that force rapidly. So that, that I, I, I've been using that, as I mentioned, for about almost 30 years in my own training. Uh, and it's a pretty traditional way to train for, for strength and power athletes. It's been around for a long time. Uh, what I've been playing with, and it's, it's been done in Europe quite a bit, is combining a strength or a power movement with either a, fundam a fundamental, movement, fundamental movement or a sports skill. I'm not a big fan of sports-specific training. I don't like to try to mimic sporting activities with barbells okay isometric is different okay you can absolutely train sports specific position with isometrics that's actually a very good way to get more powerful in your sport movement okay but if you're talking about barbell lifts even partial movements where you can kind of mimic the range of motion you, I, I won't try to mimic kicking a, 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 a soccer ball with like a heavy loaded ankle weight, for example, that just doesn't work that way. Or if I'm, I'm not going to, going to copy sprinting with a heavy loaded barbell. So if I want to develop strength, I'm going to use the barbell movement. But what I want is to learn to take that strength I have and apply it in my sporting movement. So even though I'm not a big fan of using sports specific exercises, one thing I've been playing around with and having good success over the past five or six years is using fundamental movements, sprinting, jumping, uh, lateral jumps, kicking a ball, uh, swimming even if you want, uh, or even a sports skill like throwing a basketball, uh, running a route in football, or even tackling or, or something like that. And you can actually combine that in a complex. So you could do, for example, top half back squat 
I like the top. I, I, I prefer top range of motion in the transfer phases. Uh, studies have shown that partial squats have much more transfer, much a much more positive impact on speed and jumping capacity as full squats. The full squat is a great movement to build overall muscle mass in the lower body. Okay, but the half squat is actually much better when it comes to improving vertical jump and 40-yard dash. Studies have shown that. Okay, So I still use the back squat to develop the athlete, but when it comes to I, I already have the muscle mass I want, I already have the, all the strength I want to build for that micro cycle. Now I want to apply all of that gain in my sporting movement. I'm going to switch to top half back squat in the complex. And you can do top half back squat, and then you can do a sprint, for example, or a top half back squat, and kicking a ball, for example. Or you can use tree station. So strength, top of back squat, power, uh, vertical jump, or broad jump, or depth jump, and then skill. So, so that the, the more stations you have, the easier the transfer is. Okay? For, I, I, when I, when I, I teach, I will send you the document. I have a slide where I show uh, it's a spectrum ranging from isolation exercises on machines all the way up to sports skill. And you have barbell lift, you have basic movement with barbell, basic movement with machines, you have power exercises, you have plyometrics, and it, it, fundamental movement. And basically, the closer two points are together, the easier it is to transfer what you've gained on one station to the other. So it's much easier, for example, to transfer gains from a leg press to a back squat than it is to transfer gains from a leg extension and a leg curl to a back squat. Similarly, it's easier to transfer gains made on a back squat to sprinting than leg extension to sprinting. Okay? Uh, in fact, I would argue that leg extension and leg curls pretty much has no transfer capacity to sports skill. You, you need to go through all the movement. Now, so, so if you look at a spectrum, like a squat is harder to transfer to a sports skill then a, uh, then a loaded jump squat. The loaded jump squat is closer in dynamics to the jumping, to the sprinting, so you can more easily transfer that. If you go with plyometrics, it's even fat, it's an even better transfer because the dynamics, the load, the speed are more are, are closely related to the sport movement. So the closer you are, two stations are together, the easier the transfer is. So, so if you have two things that are far away from each other, like a squat, and running, sprinting. They are like three points away from each other. If you have the natural capacity to transfer gains easily, at very high acetylcholine level, athletes who can very easily take the gains they make in a gym and transfer that on the field, well, you, you only need two stations because transfer is easy for you. You might not even need to do a complex, but the reality is that many athletes are not that gifted when it comes to transferring the gains they make in the gym to the field, they will need more station in the complex or periodizing their complexes. Remember, the more stations you have in a complex, the harder it is on the nervous system. So personally, if I can get the job done with two stations in the complex, I will pick that option. So what you can do is periodize over several weeks or even several months 
you can start by trying to transfer strength to a basic power movement, so a complex of back squat and loaded jump squat, or deadlift and power clean, or squat and power clean. So it's fairly similar movement pattern. One is heavy, one is fast, but not plyometric fast. Okay. Then you could move to another step, which is I'm going to try to transfer power clean to depth jump, for example. So two dip, they are too close together, but so we would work on that. Then you can work on trying to transfer that jump to vertical jump or that jump to broad jump. Then that's it. And then you would do a, a final complex. You're going to do that jump or broad jump and you complex that with sprinting. So it's really, you need to understand where the movement is on the spectrum. Understanding that the closer together dynamically two movements are, the easier the transfer is. And understanding if you are capable or not of easily transferring stringing. The more easily you can transfer them, the more you can go with back squat sprinting. That's fine. Or back squat jumping. But if I'm not good at doing that, then I need to use more, either more station in the complex, three, four stations, or periodize over eight, 10 weeks, various steps in your, con in your complex. Now, if you're using, for example, complexes, what I personally recommend is I would, if you still need to train strength, okay, even though you are, you have a strength component in your complex, uh, you're not using this, and that's super important to understand, okay, when you're doing a complex, and that's where people screw up complexes. They try to push that heavy movement too much. The purpose of the heavy movement in the, in the complex is not to push your strength even higher. It's not to gain strength. It's to tell your brain, hey, strength and power are similar. Use the same thing you just did, the, the, the strength to apply. Now just apply it fast. So people who push the strength movement too hard will actually create too much neurological fatigue and physical fatigue and will inhibit the power movement. So at the most, in a complex, the strength movement is an RP of 7.5 or 8. It's a weight that's heavy, but still comfortable, okay? Now, so if you still need to add more strength, then you need to train strength on a different day. You don't want to, personally, I don't like trying to gain or achieve two different things in a workout. Yeah, but Christian, you're putting a strength movement and a speed movement in a complex. That's two things. No, it's one thing. It's transferring one capacity to the other. I'm not trying to gain two in two capacity at the same time. I'm trying to transfer. That's one thing. So if I want to improve strength, it's a different workout. Okay? So that's, that's something that people need to understand. So I know it was like all over the place. So it was just basically an introduction. I'm sure you have some follow-up questions to make it more clear for your listeners. Yeah, I wrote like five things. So I'll just, I'll just go with the number one. I'll go with the, the one at the top of my head, at least, or the one that I feel like is was the biggest question. And I would say that as you were talking, probably the biggest like thing that I hadn't thought about before that was like, wow. And it fits with, um, I would say the last three months, my big thing is just trying, how do we make training as simple as it possibly can be without complicated, without complicating it anymore? Like, how can I get an athlete in the weight room and not have to be coaching all these things up and just give them the simplest with, that is the least noise? And the idea of just if I can get away with just 
squat and go do accelerations and they can make that, then awesome. Like versus I, I guess I've always thought of it more. I haven't really thought of it in that way of, of, of skill transfer. Um, not like keeping it simple that way, but if you don't, uh, if you don't have to like complicate it. And so, uh, where, where does it go with this? I guess what I'm trying to say throughout all that is I really like what you say about the complexes. Um, the more exercises I use that takes up more adrenaline and that makes sense to me. And so I think what the question I have is, uh, you mentioned periodizing the complex training. I've heard coaches say, well, we use this, this part of the year, we'll use it. And this part of the year, we won't use complex training. And I've had coaches even it's, I had a coach one time say who used complex training in the fall when the competitive season was the winter and it would track the winter and spring. And I asked him why he did it that way. And he just said, it was just because it's how you do it. <laughs> I think it was like trying to learn like motor skills or something. And then I don't know, I guess you wouldn't have all that extra adrenaline going when you're trying to stabilize gains is the way I guess I'd perceive it. But I was just getting hoping for some follow up with when you would how more about periodizing circuits. It, yeah. it really depends on, on the client or the athlete you're working with. And the big thing, as I mentioned earlier, is how easily an athlete can transfer strength gains to performance. To me, that's the key because strength is the foundation of pretty much those, all those capacities we like, like power, speed, agility. They all are based on how much force your muscles can produce. So increasing maximum force it is the foundation of athletic training. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be as strong as a powerlifter, but it means that you need to be strong to some extent. Okay, uh, so and, and once you have that strength, how does it directly impact your performance? You have people, and at least I've worked with, even a, a, a five or ten kilo increase on their squat will make them run faster and jump higher and, and be quicker. Others, they will increase their squat by thirty kilos, and there's zero change in in their performance. Uh, because some people are, and, and it's pretty easy to find out whom because those were like the elastic athletes. Like those who have like a, a like a, a bounce in their step, those who are more powerful than they are strong naturally, those who are naturally explosive, are normally those who transfer strength very easily to to sporting movement. That's because they naturally have a higher level of acetylcholine and likely also more fast twitch fibers. Uh, now, people who are naturally less explosive. It's very hard for them to be that, 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 that quickness, that, that it's super sharp. They will need a lot more time to transfer skills. I'm going to give you an example, and it, it, it's not necessarily related to complexes, but when I work with lots of hockey players, you had guys who could not skate at all during the offseason, and they would not miss a step after the offseason is done. Others, if they did not hit the heist at least once a week, they would actually be worse for a first month of practice, even if they're stronger, more powerful and quicker and more muscular and leaner. Okay. So with those who don't have that skill set to transfer very easily strength, you know what? I would use complexes almost from the start. Not from the start because you still need to focus on that foundation. But once that foundation is on the way, it can still be part of the early off season, maybe starting week six or something like that. It, obviously, depending on the length of the off season period, because that's also important. If you have 12 weeks to train or if you have 30 weeks to train, it's going to be different, obviously. But, but athletes who have less skill to transfer strength into sport movement, 
they need to use complexes as early as possible. Okay. But it doesn't mean like using those super like complex complexes. It could be just two points. Like just start with strength and power, strength and power. And, and at that point, that, that's going to be one workout a week. I obviously use whole body training with athletes. So it's very easy to fit those into play. For example, you can have one strength workout. You can have one complex workout and you could have uh, one purely power workout or one, even one hypertrophy workout, depending on what the athlete needs. So using a whole body approach, it's very, very easy to plan training. You can you three sessions, two sessions, that, that, that's, that's fine. Each, uh, as long as you're hitting a muscle, at least indirectly twice a week, it will progress. So whole body training, even if you're training only twice a week, you're going to progress. That's not an issue. And it allows you to train different capacities on different days. If I'm using even an upper lower split, it really limits the options when it comes to using different approaches. And as I mentioned, I don't like to use more than one approach in a workout. The reason is, and that also touches on the adrenaline portion I mentioned earlier, the reason why complexes raise adrenaline more is because the more your brain or nervous system is involved, the harder it has to work to perform the workout, the more adrenaline you release. And it's easy to understand because, well, you know what? If my workout requires more brain activity, I need to fire up those neurons faster. And the three neurotransmitters that can do that are dopamine, adrenaline, and glutamate. And adrenaline being the fight or flight hormone or neurotransmitter is obviously the one that will be raised when you're doing physical activity. Dopamine will be raised mostly once you have achieved a goal, for example, and it's responsible for motivation. But it's really adrenaline that will allow you to have the increase in brain power to perform more complex tasks. Now, when people think of needing more brain power or nervous system power to do training, they think of more complex exercises. Like a power clean is more complex than a squat. A squat is more complex than a leg press. Leg press more complex than a leg curl. It's not as simple as that. The more different tasks you have in a workout, the harder your brain needs to work. And the more you are switching around the motor task, the harder it is for your brain. That's why, besides complexes, I never combine exercises when I train athletes. I wouldn't do like what some bodybuilders do and do like a back exercise and a chest exercise. Because switching from one movement pattern to another movement pattern will amp your brain up too much, producing too much adrenaline can lead to a training burnout. And now with complexes, you have a little bit of that. Obviously, the more stations you have, the more brain power you need because you have more motor tasks to perform. The more brain power you need, the more adrenaline you release. But at least because the movement patterns are similar, I mean, it's the same joints moving at different speeds, but same range of motion, same movement. It's not as different as squat and squat and bench or bench and pull up, for example. So, so, but it, it's still demanding. So that's the reason why uh, complexes increase adrenaline. But it's the same thing if I'm having two different types of stimulation in a workout. If I'm doing strength work, then I'm doing power work, and I'm doing whatever, it's speed work in one workout. It's three different types of stimulation. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying it increases adrenaline, which actually makes you perform better in that workout except for some situation where the excess adrenaline can make you tighter and will screw up your motor pattern. 
but it will definitely impair recovery. So if you want to use more than one type of training in one training there, one session, you need to factor that in and increase the number of rest days. So that, that's super important. And so with complexes, because they're, even though you're not trying to increase strength and increase power, it's more of a transfer thing, uh, it's still two different things. So you don't want to add another layer to that. So when I do complexes, it, the workout only has complexes. So there's one day where I, I could do two, two complexes, one upper body, one lower body. That's it. Don't do more. There's already a lot of neurological demands from the variation in point in the strength velocity curve. It's already demanding. I, I would rather have you, you do more sets per complex than having a third one. One upper, one lower. That's it. You're not bodybuilders. You're an athlete, right? So the, the, the point I'm making is, first, the more naturally explosive you are, the less you need early complexes in your training. The more you can wait until, uh, not the last block of training, because you want that stabilization period, but let's say the, uh, the period from 10 to six weeks out or to four weeks out, that's where I would use them. If you have the natural skill to transfer uh, strength to your sports skill, if you're not good at that, you need to lengthen your use of complexes, going from the most general complex, moving toward the more specific complex. Specific meaning I'm going to use two or three exercises points that are dynamically more similar your sporting skill. So that, for example, the last complex I'm going to be using, I could be using jump squats with sprinting or jump squat, jump squats with vertical jump and jump, jump lunges or jump split squat with sprinting. For example, I also like using uh, Bulgarian split squat jumps. I, I really like that because you have to like, push with your leg, but as soon as you're done pushing, you have to bring your knee up as high as possible, which kind of mimics the dynamic of sprinting. But early on, you could use a much easier complex to adapt to, so strength movement, power movement. So top half back squat with power clean or top half back squat with uh, loaded jump squat. And then you would move on to a, uh, the, the second complex would be uh, something like a power clean and a depth jump. And then eventually you move on to that last one, uh, the, the, the loaded jump squat and the vertical jump, for example. And if you really are not good at transferring, you could actually replace or add a sports skill to your complex. And most people actually don't need to use that. But those who are really not good at transferring mm -hmm. strength and power to their sports skill, the, the strength they gain on basic movement on their sports skill, that's a pretty cool tool to use. Uh, obviously, you need the installations to be able to do that. You need to have uh, the, the setup or a, a track and a weight room in the same space. For example, uh, I know, for example, uh, if with hockey players, you could actually do heavy loaded sled pull on the ice, followed by sprint on the ice, or even cone drills on the ice, or even shooting drills. So that's something that, that's pretty cool. So again, the less efficient you are at transferring the strength and power gains you make in a gym, the longer you need to use complexes in your training. Uh, and the more gifted you are, the less you need to use them. The more complexes you use in your training, the more rest you need. So you don't do anything else in that training day. And normally I, I would do them for once a week. 
And then that gives you one or two other days to either work on strength or power by itself. Because as I mentioned earlier, the goal of complexes is not to increase strength. It's not to increase power. Other people think, oh, that's cool. You're going to increase strength and power at the same time. That's not how it works. If you try to do that, you will burn out. Complexes are a tool to take the strength and power you already have and create a connection so that the gains in one more readily transfer to the other one. So that's how you should see it. So you still need, if you still want to increase strength and power, you still need to work on them, but on separate days. So for example, on the early off season, you could do one strength day, one complex day, and one hypertrophy day because you need to build those tissues. When I say hypertrophy days, I'm not necessarily talking about building muscle. To me, it's more about building tendons, uh, increasing, improving movement form, uh, the control of the barbell. So I like slow eccentrics. I like uh, isometrics uh, to strengthen key position, increase core, increase coordination, but the muscle mass will come. Then the second block, you could go with strength, transfer, transfer being the complexes, and power. Then you're going to have one last phase where we, we would go Strength, speed, complexes, speed, strength, for example. So the more you move toward the season, the more you go with the speed work. Now, the complexes, you can use uh, at the end, you could use a strength complex of, let's say, top half back squat, uh, loaded jump squat, and sprint. That will actually maintain your strength. So if you don't want, if you're close to your season, you don't need to gain any more strength, well, you can work on and power and speed is more important at that point. Well, remove the strength work, do strength speed work, which is uh, Olympic lifting, could be a high speed back squat or something like that. And then you do a, a speed strength work, which would be plyometrics, could be loaded jump squats and stuff like that. We have three workouts that will actually increase your speed. And that's what you want. You expose it that that's what you want. And the complexes themselves can actually help you maintain your strength. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, while talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order, and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. I like, uh, I'm thinking about bringing up a lot of thoughts in my head. One is, it's funny, because I have to really rewind my own athletic career first, and then I'm kind of thinking about anecdotes and how my programming has kind of changed over time. And I'll say this first, it's funny. When I first started using French Contrast in my training programs, for example, maybe uh, seven, eight years ago. And then as I remember writing them about six years ago, a French contrast for the people, hopefully people listening know what it is, but like a heavy strength and a uh, forceful plyometric, then an explosive strength, and then like a rapid fire plyometric or speed to finish. I That circuit was so effective. When I first started writing programs, I 
threw it into programs really fast, really soon in the program. And I had like four or five sets of it a lot of times just because I'm like, well, this is so good. And I just think about, oh, yeah, I can create great results right away. But it's like, well, how long, where are you going to go from here is always what I'm thinking of. Like, how are you going to take this and build on it and, and, and improve it? And my last year at Cal, uh, this was like, I think this was a year where a lot of things, I mean, things were always coming together. But the best results I got from a group was, I remember the, the men's, um, usually what I would do like men's swimming, for example, they would have a big meet in December, first week in December. And they would train a fall, have this big meet, and then they'd rest a little bit and then have their other big meet nationals in March. And I would do like an eight-week, a six to eight-week French contrast going into that first December meet. And then I would basically re kind of reset and do the same thing going into March. And then my last year there, I did the French contrast going into December, but I only let him do two sets of it. I said, you only get two sets of this instead of three and just get as much out of it as you can. And then we did, I let them have three sets going into March. And I felt like that worked so much better. Um, although we didn't get to see because of COVID canceled, ended up canceling the meet. But up until then, they were their speed, their vertical jump testing in the weight room was that the the consistent increase throughout the year was so much better um, than what I had had in the past where I was just slamming more sets. It's like, oh, it's the the fall. We're going to slam more sets of this complex to build a base. <laughs> That's an, and that brings an interesting topic. Okay. In my opinion, and that might go against uh, the, I would say, the current opinion among the hypertrophy community. Okay, in my opinion, volume is the last thing you should increase when you want to increase the training stimulus. That's the last thing you want to increase. If you need to increase training volume to increase a stimulus, you're not doing your job properly. You should have other ways to progress. I mean, if you understand our complex works, you can literally build 100 of them simply by using different methods at each training point. Let's say, let, let's take a, 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 a three point contract. Okay. One, you're going to have a strength movement. Then you're going to have a strength speed movement. Then you're going to have a speed strength movement or a reactive strength movement. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I know at least easily 10, 20 methods I can use in a strength movement. I can use heavy partials. I could use chains. I can use bands. I can vary the exercises. I can use clusters. I can use functional isometrics. I can use uh, the max fatigue iso max, uh, or the isometronics, which I will be discussing one other time. But the point is, I have lots of methods I can use there. Strength speed. You could use power clean, power snatch. You can use from the hang, from blocks. You can use clusters. You can use waves. You can use, not wave, but clusters. You can use, um, even slow eccentric on the uh, on the Olympic lift, or when you're going from the hang, you could use with pause, like pausing before you explode. There's many many variations you can use. You can use eye poles, uh, all that stuff. Then speed strength, you could go uh, jump squats. You can go with kettlebell swings. You, you have methods you can use with every point. Uh, so you can increase the demands of the complexes simply by changing. The, the 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 difficulty of each point of course personally i would say don't increase the demands of all three points at the same time that's overkill but for example you can increase the strength lift the demand of the method used for the strength lift you can use it you can increase it while keeping the other methods the same and the training stimulus is still higher so for example i could go from just a, a top half back squat 
for uh, for the, the strength movement to a uh, let's say uh, top half back squat with a cluster method, for example, that would be more more demanding. I could use functional isometrics, which would be more demanding. Uh, so that that allows me to have at least ten steps in the difficulty of that same complex simply by changing the method on the strength movement and the strength speed. I have less, but I still have many strength speed technique or methods that I can use, maybe five, and maybe three in a speed strength. So that gives me an almost unlimited combination of, of complexes you can use, very gradually increasing the demand. I believe that one of the, okay, I strongly believe in the principle of progressive overload, okay? However, I think that most people screw up Progressive overload being you gradually increase the stress level of a workout as your body adapts to it so that you, you are forced to continue adapting to it. The, the, the reason that the problem is that most people see adding weight as the only way to progressively overload. It's not the case. But even if that were the case, okay, the reason most people don't, don't have good results with progressive overload is that they increase weight too much or too quick. Okay. For example, uh, from my experience, uh, a, a normal person can get an athlete can gain between 0.5 and 2% strength from a workout from week to week. Okay. Now, uh, obviously, the more advanced you are, the closer you are to the 0.5%, the more, the, the, the more beginner you are, the closer you can be to 2%. But people will have like 10 pounds to the bar on each side. And you just increase the weight by 10% or by 5%. It's still at least 4% more than what your body actually gained. Now, if you were not working close to your limit, you can probably keep up with that increase for a few weeks. But eventually, you're going to hit the wall. Okay? That's the problem with progressive overload. People assume you need to increase the stress at every workout. No, you need to increase, yeah, yeah, but to the smallest amount possible. For example, if you have a three-point complex and you build, okay, you build your complexes, you start by listing all the methods you know for each of these points. And let's say, for example, I'm going to list all the strength methods, all the strength speed methods, all the speed strength methods, all the reactive strength methods. And then from that point, you, you, you classify them in order from the, the less demanding to the most demanding. Now, just going one step in one of these stations will increase the demand of the workout, but not so much that you are, in, you are overloading too much versus your capacity to progress. So now if you have, you can have easily 200 variations of the same complex. So you have literally a lifelong uh, of progression to follow. I mean, most athletes, if you change the type of complex you're doing, among the 200 you have listed, and that's not even including exercises change, okay? Well, most athletes won't even make it through 10% of that list. So, so that's how you progress. Adding volume with athletes, and that's what I'm teaching, is the least amount of volume you can do and progress at a satisfactory rate, the better off you are. Because you're, gonna have, you're not going to drain your nervous system. You're going to have more resources to be able to perform in your sport workouts. Hey, we're not talking about bodybuilding here, okay? 
And now, what is a satisfactory rate? Well, as I mentioned, it's, it's between, okay, so most would be a 1% strength increase from week to week. Uh, so as long as you're, you're gaining that, you're improving that, well, you know what? You're doing a good job. The problem is that most people have uh, unrealistic expectations when it comes to strength training and, and to muscle mass, okay? And, and yes, some people will be able to gain 100 pounds on their bench press in a year, but most don't. But the problem is that everybody tries to do it and then they burn out and they start to regress because the problem is that it's not just a matter of, well, does it matter if at least I'm trying, that's what's important. No, it's not. Because once you hit that wall, okay, once you are trying to add weight too fast, too quickly, when your body is not ready for that increase in load, what happens is you gradually will have compensatory mechanisms going on. You will change your technique very slightly. Your speed will go down and you become worse and worse and worse. And what happens is after two or three weeks of that, you can't even lift what you were lifting before. It's not because you lost muscle. It's not even because you're neurologically drained. It's because your motor pattern became less efficient because you did all those poor reps just to get the reps in. If you force yourself to add 10 pounds to the bar every week, like we see many powerlifters do, just to keep up with that weight, they allow themselves to have looser and looser and looser technique, leading to bad motor pattern, compensatory mechanisms. And when they reach a point where you know what, their technique is all, it, it's completely destroyed. Okay. So, so, so really, it, biggest mistake people make is they try to progress in the gym too fast. Okay. If, you, if you're working hard, you will progress if, you, if you're resting enough. Don't for, try to force your body to progress faster than it can physiologically do. Uh, I have I've, I have a couple of thoughts. I'm going to try to list them in hopefully the correct order that lands uh, you at the question I, I want to ask you. One is, you know, it's funny because I, I think it's almost like I have different phases of my coaching life. I have like the intuitive athlete phase where I didn't know a lot and just was trying to figure yeah. stuff out and didn't have pre-existing ideas in my head, or at least a lot of them. And at age 21, I jumped my high jump personal best of seven feet or two meters 14. And I remember that year, like I didn't do any complex training. It was just all serial stuff. Um, I just, the only closest thing I could remember is maybe doing a set of depth jumps or a few set of depth jumps and then going over to a basketball hoop and being able to jump really high easily, like just getting that wave of, you know, potentiation. And then when I was in grad school, I started picking up on complex training a little bit, like doing some uh, heavy step ups and bounding. And I was like, oh, that feels good. And then it was kind of like the older I got, I almost needed, I started to need the complexes at that Mm -hmm. point because it's all I had left to gain. Like, and, and. I was always able to do them well. Like I felt like I was able to process having a lot of tasks and I enjoyed it, but it's almost like I projected the second half of my, my career, my coaching, where I started doing all the complex stuff onto everybody. And I forgot that, well, I jumped my personal best and high jump and triple jump when I wasn't doing any of this stuff. And I obviously had that ability to transfer things over without needing all the bridges in between. And it's funny because, yeah, as you were saying, like, when you were first talking about that, I was like, wait, I'm elastic. I love complexes. I respond really well. And that's like, oh, wait, back here. Let's go back to college. Let's go back to even high school. I didn't do any of that stuff. And it was totally fine. And a part of it, too, I feel like is due to when my latter years, like my 20s and 30s, I didn't have the training environment that I had in high school and college. And that was a massive reason I didn't do you as didn't. well. Just I just thrive off having people around and just competing and letting my body self-organize to to compete with people so and they say that uh, you know 
when they talk about West Side barbell training, right? It's not West Side if it's not at West Side. Yeah. Because the environment is the big difference. I remember the, 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 the first time I benched over 400, it is because, well, you had like 20 people in the gym benching 400. And you see all these guys lifting big weights. You kind of like, you know what? I should be able to do that too. And it, it, and it pushes you to work harder. It gives you more adrenaline too because you want to compete with these guys, especially if you're competitive. And, and when you achieve a goal, then it, it increases dopamine and it, it motivates you to achieve another goal because it gives you a, it's a reward system. But yeah, and the, the, the important point you made is that a good coach, and I made that mistake times, I still make it. Uh, it's don't give your client what you are in love with. Give your client what they need at that stage of their career and at their individual, situ- in their individual situation, like neurologically speaking, muscle fiber speaking, or life stress speaking. So, so you need to have the understanding of why a method work, works and how you can modify it to different situations and if you need to use it at all or if you don't use it. So, so that, that's great coaching. And, and for example, in your case, uh, complexes would have been probably even more, more effective if you had more stepping stone, meaning that if your first complex is like a, a, a five on a scale of effort and the next one is eight, you know what? It, it's a pretty big step to go from one to the other. If you have five, five point five, six, six point five, you know what? You're gonna be able to progress for longer without overly stressing your system. I'm I'm gonna make an analogy here. One of the strongest guys in the world. When I say strongest guys, I mean before the steroid era. I mean, and I'm not I. I'm not against steroid. That's what, I'm, that's not what I'm saying is that nowadays it's kind of hard to know, okay, are the strength gains due to the methodologies or to the drugs? Okay. Now, if you go prior to 90, uh, 1955-ish, well, steroids didn't exist. When testosterone had been used in the, the Second World War by German soldiers, but that's pretty much it. So, and it wasn't yet used by lifters except in the Soviet Union, but not in the US or Canada. And the first steroid was invented in 1963, if I'm not mistaken, Dynabol by Cyber Pharmaceutical. Anyway, so athletes from that era, you're pretty sure that they were not on, on gear, right? And a guy named Doug Ebburn was one of the strongest guys at that time. He was the first man to bench press over 500. Um, and he, was, he squatted over 700, a so pretty strong dude. And his method was supremely simple, okay? Uh, basically, he, he, his goal was to do, to complete eight sets of three reps, okay? And he would pick a weight that was challenging for three reps. And the first set, he would do a set of three reps. And he would do seven sets of two reps with the same weight. The next week, he would do two sets of three reps with the same weight, then six sets of two reps. Only adding one total reps out of the 24 he had to do. Next week, three sets, uh, three sets of three, five sets of two. Again, one more rep. And once he was able to complete all of his eight work sets with three reps, he would add 10 pounds. Super slow, extremely slow progression. It would literally take him months to add weight to the bar. 
But every workout would be very slightly harder by adding one more total rep, which is nothing when you think about it. But the dude had bench pressed 500. He actually, even, I think he bench pressed 580 at one point. Uh, he pushed press close to 500 like a beast. You know what? It, it works. Keep changing your body. The problem is that people want to jump from level one to level five too fast. And that will likely burn you out. Uh, because if you add stress, when your body is not ready for that stress level, it will lead to issues with other parts of your training or even your life. You might be able to do it for a while because when you are in that high stress zone, I'm challenging my body more than it is capable of handling properly. You will basically live in the sympathetic zone. Your body will always overproduce adrenaline. So it actually makes you think that it works because your results in the gym are good or even in the pool or in the track, it's good because your adrenaline is so high that you are firing on all cylinders until you hit the wall. Now you're done. You're done. You're not going to recover from that. So it it, it takes a lot of discipline. And also you need to be really confident in your coach or as a coach, you need to trust that you know what you're doing, that you actually, on purpose, don't try to be PRs every day. Like, I'm going to progress by the smallest amount possible to keep challenging my body. And that takes a lot of discipline to do because we all want to perform better right now. But training is only a means to an end. If you do everything to perform like a beast in the gym, and you tax your recovery or your nervous system too much, it will negatively impact every part of your training. And that's not what we want. When you, as we're, long as we're on the train of, um, and I, this thought popped up before I asked the next questions um, in terms of training progression, but I keep thinking in my head as you're talking about this is the, uh, almost like the ultimate model. Like what's the purest athlete that could almost uh, transfer the most basic exercises? Um, like I think of Usain Bolt and you see his, he, the guy doesn't like squatting even. I don't even know what he really does for legs. Like a lot of this like kind of. Honestly, I'm not even sure if what he does in the gym <laughs> matters at all for him. Yeah. I think he, he could not, not train and he would be just as fast in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, I just. Yeah, just even doing like the lunges and just the hills and just the sleds. And but Kim you know. Collins didn't even lift weights. <laughs> yeah. He, he was 984, I think. Yeah, that guy was, yeah. It's almost like sometimes too, I feel like the, the Caribbean lifestyle almost enhances, I feel like on some of the ability to just be more pure in your training and maybe not have to do as much extra stuff or it's maybe a, just a lower more, adrenaline type, type vibe. I think I it's really more that they are, ex- well, it, the, the, the extremely laid back lifestyle certainly plays a role because here in North America, basically we train, we stress our body and everything else we do in our day also stresses the body or the nervous system. We never, very rarely are we allowed to go like full off mode. Okay. And even when we do, we, we worry about stuff. We think about stuff. You go to the Caribbeans. These guys don't worry about life. They all, they, they enjoy life. They, they are happy. And the fact that running is revered in the island. And that matters a lot because you can see kids who are like four years old and they're just running around all the time. Instead of here, people will take the bus to go three meters, uh, 30 meters, <laughs> 300 meters further that that's horrible right 
like I'm at home here. Uh, the grocery store is like 40 minutes away. I always walk there. I walk there every day, but I see people like it's literally a two minutes drive. And people do that since they were kids. They, they, they don't walk. They don't sprint. They don't do anything physical anymore. That's a huge difference. Of course, genetics plays a role. But what you've been brought up doing, like I'm, I'm brought up doing physical activity, it matters a lot. If I'm jumping around all the time, I'm running around, it will matter when I'm, once I'm, I'm an adult. Because even though genetics plays a big role in, for example, your fast with fibers ratio, your uh, neurological profile, stuff like that, what you do in your formative years will definitely impact how the brain develops, how your body develops. So someone who grows up sprinting and jumping all the time, even though you might not be born to be a, a fast switch machine, you know what, maybe what happens in those formative years will give him an, an, an edge. And that's something that we don't see anymore. Yeah, I feel like too, just my thought is I watch like the Jamaicans particularly sprinting and I see stuff that they do, like, you know, the Jamaican toe drag and people are like, oh, is it the best biomechanically and studying? It's like, I feel like these people just came up with it intuitively because they've just lived and breathed sprinting. And it's just like, here's the genius of the brain. This felt good. This rhythm felt good coming out of the blocks. Like just the stuff that you see technically coming up because it is cultural. It is something that they probably have been thinking about since a young age and that just and the feel based component of it. So I, I it's, in, it's instinctive, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um so with the, um, okay, so my, my thought is this, is with, uh, I always am thinking, yeah, like what's the most pure way we can train an athlete with the least amount of noise and getting complicated? I think I was thinking about um, in uh, Easy Strength by Dan, John, and Pavel, they talk about, and I'm thinking about your spectrum of, of things that are a draining uh, on the far end being like the craziest French contrast you could come up with. And on the other end being like a leg extension, but a leg press. The worst, is- the worst would be CrossFit. <laughs> Literally, keep- no, but honestly, <laughs> because CrossFit fit, it, it it checks all the boxes when it comes to increasing adrenaline. Yeah, uh, the, the many variables that increase adrenaline when training, and I said adrenaline, but also cortisol. But what, what people need to understand is that cortisol and adrenaline are connected. Okay? Cortisol will actually increase adrenaline because cortisol will increase the conversion of noradrenaline to adrenaline, especially in the brain. So uh, the six variables that will impact that, first one is volume. The more volume you do, the more cortisol and adrenaline you get. The second one is intensiveness, how hard you push each set. Third one is psychological stress. It could, be, it could go two ways. It could be heavy, so the heavy weight creates anxiety. Or it could be, I know this is going to suck. Like, I know I'm going to be like lying on the floor after the workout, so I'm going to have anticipatory increase in adrenaline. Uh, then the, for, the fourth one is the neurological demand, how hard your brain needs to work. So it could be the complexity of the movement, could be combining exercises in one unit, could be doing many different tasks in one workout, could be learning a new movement. That's why with athletes, I don't like changing exercises. Once I found a movement that works best for their body type, I stick with it. I was working with this uh, sprint cyclist, and what I noticed is that every time we, I change the type of squat he was doing, his performance on the track went down for two weeks until it recovered. So I said, well, screw this, it's not worth it. So that's the, the fourth one. The fifth one is training density. The longer the rest interval, the less stress you have because you can bring adrenaline back down between your sets just enough to avoid overloading it. And the last one is competitiveness. So if you're training and you're too competitive in training, that also increases adrenaline. And when you look at CrossFit, right? Mm-hmm. High volume, check. Uh, 
yeah, intensiveness, check. These guys are basically crawling on the floor after the workout. You have uh, psychological stress, check. You have neurological demands. Well, you're combining all those crazy exercises with eye motor skills demand, check. High density, very low rest, check. Uh, competitiveness, check. So it's it's literally the worst thing to do for recovery. Before I jump into the um, expand on that last question I had, what do you think about the uh, like using velocity, like tendo units and velocity based units on a bar? Because that obviously makes it more adrenaline, right? As well, like what are your thoughts on bringing that in throughout the year? Or uh, I, I used it. Um, no, I, I was one of the first to use the tendo unit. I was using it uh, in 1999 when it first came out, or close to when it first came out. So that I've been using them for a while. Uh, honestly, I don't like the feeling. And I like to use it as a testing tool, uh, also to teach an athlete how a fast squat should feel. And I want them to try to mimic that feeling. And, and, but what I want is to learn what fast enough feels like so they will know when they're not moving the barbell fast enough. But I found that, as you mentioned, if you try to beat the machine every time, it gives you more adrenaline, which is great for performance, bad for recovery. So it's double-edged sword. I'm not saying not to use it, but when when you every time you increase adrenaline with one variable, you need to decrease it somewhere else. So to me, okay, you increase adrenaline by increasing competitiveness by trying to beat the machine. Well, I need to decrease one of the other variables to compensate. Uh, do I want to do more volume, less volume to allow me to use the machine? No. Do I want to push my set less hard to be able to use the machine? No. My, I do I want to use methods that cause uh, that are like lighter or less neurological demands? No. Okay. I'm, I'm willing to increase the rest intervals. I'm willing to uh, maybe uh, work on something else. But honestly, it's just a matter of, okay, I, I know it's going to increase adrenaline. Is it worth it? So I like to use it for testing and for teaching what the proper speed is. But when I was personally doing it, it felt like I was training in a, in a dentist's office. <laughs> Like <laughs> science is cool, but there's a thing, such a thing as too scientific. It becomes like, I don't want to feel like Ivan Drago with like that VO2 max mask when I'm trading and people injecting needles when I'm doing barbell curl. I don't know. I just want to like do the movement. And the more you can focus on the movement instead of focusing on something external, the better results you have. I want to develop that inner uh, perception to know if I'm, uh, being aware of what I'm doing instead of relying on a machine to do it. Now, as a coach, that's different. If I'm going to use it with an athlete, I'm not going to have the athlete look at it. I'm going to look at it and I can adjust the weight uh, depending on the results I'm seeing. I don't want the athlete to be in competition with the machine and I don't want him to be focused on the machine instead of being focused on the lift or the exercise. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot about, I totally agree with you, by the way. I One of the big, um, a shift in how I approached Olympic lifts came a, a coach um, that I was working with had wanted his athletes to start the Olympic lifts off with really lightweight with the tendos just to learn to move it fast it was more pedagogical than it was like and then they, the tendos after about a month all right well so the tendos you guys got it you're good <laughs> that's what I did you just teach because it gives you feedback okay I, I for example Olympic lift should be around uh, at least one meter per second a power lift, a, a power version. So they need to feel 
what that is because they can they might think they're moving fast because they can lift the barbell overhead at 0.7 meter per second and i want them to feel what proper speed for each movement is like and then once they know that feeling they won't need the machine anyway when i'm squatting i can actually pretty accurately tell you the speed i'm going in meter per second because I know what 0.8 meter per second feels like. I know what 0.6 meter per second feels like on my squat. Probably not on barbell curl, but on a squat because I've used it a lot on my squat. And that's a, that's a, knowing that is more important than the tool itself. Because I believe when it comes to athletes, once you have built that foundation of strength, I think being stronger at at least 0.6 meter per second is more important than increasing your max strength for an athlete. Yeah. So I, I, once you reach a, you have enough strength to have a decent foundation, I would much prefer that you focus on being able to move more weight at 0.6 meter per second. So don't add weight if that takes you below that. Yeah. Like lower than that. It takes me even into outside the weight room too. I wonder, I mean, if you're training sprints, like you always use a timer, you know, and it just makes me think of how often it, it usually they would just go, all right, every week you're just going to get timed. And I, I kind of wonder like, I don't know, maybe every three weeks just doing something else. That's not that, you know what I'm saying? Like, I wonder if we could apply that logic to, I don't know, you just got wheels turning in my head. I sometimes I'll do like a speed gate golf where I, I just say, just try to hit this time on the nose. That's submaximal, like, like a weight set, right? Like, and try to get as close or, to as you can. For example, instead of doing 60 meters, do 58 meters or do <laughs> 63 meters or 70 meters See, a, a, a distance nobody trains it's because now you don't have a reference you don't have a number to beat you can just focus on the run itself yeah yeah exactly I, I like that yeah just like it's almost like the bigger faster stronger method where you get to pr a different way each week or whatever but yeah. you know just kind of that same mentality <laughs> so, mostly just to focus on the activity instead of the end goal yeah, I the mean, there's a, thing to, there's a time to focus on achieving the best performance possible on a certain distance, a distance on which you have measures to compare yourself to. But there's also a time where you need to focus on being able to go fast, but while focusing on proper mechanics. So when your brain your, is not trying to achieve a certain result on a precise distance, okay, okay, you, just, you just ran, for example, that's X time on 45 meters. Is that good? I don't know. I don't care. I want to see if you can run, run smooth. I want to see if you can run fast with proper technique while being relaxed. So I think that early on in the off season, that would be a pretty interesting thing to do with sprinters. Yeah, I think there's just, I love talk. I love having these conversations. I think there's just so much crossover between just, just pure speed or track speed or even like some game speed stuff. And I, you think even too, like how does a, a football athlete get fast? It's not like they're timed specifically for each little movement they make. It's just all perception. Did I achieve the process? Did I, yeah. you know, it's, so. Well, we go back to the Jamaican kid. I mean, they're sprinting. They, they learn they're sprinting by just running around. Uh, just like the Brazilian soccer player. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they play on uh, like a, a, not a real soccer ball, not a real field. So they don't, they don't have those um, measuring sticks to compare themselves to. So all they can focus on is improving their own execution and learning the movement, feeling the movement, in my opinion, and even like sprinting on different, uh, different uh, structures. Like uh, don't, don't always run on track, sometimes run on grass, for example. 
so that, that that changes things. Anyway, yeah, just just was thinking. Yeah, I was just just um, two days ago. I did. Uh, I was doing 150 meter sprints instead of a track. I just found a trail with like some logs to occasionally <laughs> jump over. It's some level changes, and it was just so alivening. I mean, it was awesome. Well, you you don't feel like you are like in a box, like you're you're free. And actually, it will. I, I'm pretty sure that for most people, it will actually lead to a much more relaxed running. And surprisingly, it will probably lead to better mechanics. Yeah. Because tension actually is one of the main reasons why people screw up their running mechanics. As soon as they start to have tension somewhere, it changes the movement pattern. But if you're running free, you're not actually, you're just feeling the movement, in my opinion, causes less anxiety, less stress. Uh, and then, you know what? It might actually lead to improvement. Yeah. One thing that I, I'd love to see measured, I don't, I haven't worked in, uh, college football. So I, I can't say this, but sometimes people will show a video of like a soccer player, or a football player, or a team sport athlete doing a timed sprint just on a track lane or something and just saying, oh, look at their terrible form. But I kind of, I've seen athletes who they get on that clock and their form totally changes because they're just thinking about it. They're, they're pushing hard because they have this try mentality. But then if, I'm curious if you video that person running in a game, what you would see. You know, one thing they have in the NFL right now, which is pretty awesome, they can actually measure the sprint, the running speed of every player on every play. So they can, have, even if it's just a running back running the ball, they know how fast he's going. And DK Metcalf, a guy, a receiver from the Seahawks, who actually went to the U.S. trial for 100 meters. Uh, he finished seven, but he, he ran like, like 10, four. Yeah, it's fast. Like, but the guy, the guy is like 235, 245 lean. It's, it's just a beast. Anyway, uh, his top speed on a, a running a route was actually faster or close to a top speed on a 100 meters dash. We are wearing a suit. Because he's not thinking about the line. He's just, maybe they're doing it. I don't know what's happening, but he was reaching speeds that most elite sprinters like would, would be very happy to reach on, on some runs. But yeah. I find that pretty interesting. Yeah, I was just doing a presentation and I was, uh, I just had a, um, I, I just love, um, I had a frame of his like run in a position he was in. And it's just as, it's awesome how good the, like his, his sprint form is. Uh, looking at just general factors of sprinting. And here's a guy just thinking about catching, you know, Buda Baker on this, this highlight play. It is awesome. So just thinking about with the, with the easy strength, they were talking about like the idea of uh, like, if you're in season, the idea of just using a leg press, uh, just because it's so low cost, like it's, and, and hopefully, you know, the athlete, a good athlete could just transfer that over uh, fairly easily. It's funny you mentioned that because in, in my presentation, uh, I will say that to you afterwards, uh, I talk about deloading. And, you know, deloading, people don't understand what it's really about. It's only about reducing training stress. And there's more than one way to do that. I mentioned the sixth variable earlier. As long as you decrease one of these variables, you decrease training stress. And people think of deloading by I'm going to do less volume, I'm going to do less frequency, I'm going to do less load. Okay. But you have so many variables that you can do. You can go from one complex movement to a very simple one. And that will also have a deloading effect or increase your recovery. And that's the exact example mm -hmm. I give going from a front squat to a leg press. You know what? It will allow you to neurologically recover because it's a much simpler movement. And you can still maintain the muscle mass. And here's the thing. In the season, okay, let's say you have an athlete in season. He doesn't need a sport, an exercise with a high transfer capacity. 
because he's doing all those skills on the field already. Mm -hmm. So he will transfer the strength he has. Anyway, he's not going to gain that much strength in the season. So he, and, and so if he's done a jump, the jump properly, he already transferred the strength he has. So if he just maintains his strength, he has no new strength to transfer. See what I mean? So the job's done. And even if he did gain strength in the, in the gym, which might actually happen just because you're changing the stimulus, you know what? You're practicing your sport four or five days a week. You're jumping and sprinting four or five days a week. That will automatically lead to a transfer because of the sheer amount of volume and frequency you spend doing those explosive drills. And I absolutely believe in that. And right in season, I, I believe in <coughs> using the less neurologically stressful movement as possible. For example, the, the football player mentioned earlier, in season, what we do for lower body is for the, lower, for the legs is pushing a heavy sled. Let's push a heavy sled forward and backwards with a load that is challenging for 30 meters. That will be very heavy. And that will be in a strength zone. When I, when I look at loaded carries and sled push, I tend to look at the equation 10 meters equal one rep. So, for example, strength would be three to five reps to develop it. Like one to two is more to showcase it, so three to five. So that's 30 to 50 meters of, of sled drag sled, or sled push or sled drag. And I could go heavy. I can go fast. I can, I can play with it. But what I found, I can even go longer just for hypertrophy purposes. So for the main strength movement we have in season is, is the prowler push. I can maintain leg strength very easily. There is no eccentric stress, so it's very easy to recover from. I can do it daily without it affecting performance. Uh, and normally what I would, I would also use uh, as a combination, uh, an explosive squat. So for example, just using the, uh, the uh, way that I can move I, w I would use it at the beginning of the offseason. I, I would try, I will find out the heaviest weight I can move, or the athlete can move at 0.6 meter per second. And throughout the whole offseason, we try to use the same weight. We don't even try to increase it. The goal is to try to increase the speed at which you're moving it, or at least not lose any speed. So if okay, most athletes at 0.6 meter per second will be between 60 and 70%, uh, the more explosive athletes, like personally, I can use 85% and move at 0.6 meter per second. The higher, the better, of course, because that means you're explosive. Uh, and the goal would be to use that 60, 70%. With an athlete, football player, probably, probably more like 70 or maybe even 80% if he's explosive. And if I'm not losing any speed during the, uh, during the in season, I'm not losing strength. I might lose the capacity to move a maximal weight just because I lose the feeling of a heavy bar on my back. But that doesn't matter on the football field. You just want to hit hard and run fast. And as long as you don't lose speed with that bar, you're not losing the strength. Okay? And you're using the heavy prowler to like, use that slow speed strength development. And both methods are very, very low stress, very easy to recover from. And sometimes I will throw some uh, some isometrics in there, uh, overcoming isometrics uh, on deadlift, for example, or on bench press to maintain strength. So normally in season, that's what we do for lower body. And for upper body, we normally just do like bodybuilding stuff or even machines mm -hmm. uh, just to reduce the stress. I mean, the work's done. The goal is just to maintain muscle mass, maintain strength and power. And since they're already – and that's a big issue, right? And that's a different topic, but 
I see basketball strength coaches or volleyball strength coaches having athletes in season do tons of plyometrics, tons of, you know what, dude, they're already jumping like hundred times every practice. What else will you gain by doing 20 jumps in a gym? Nothing. Mm -hmm. You'll just overload the tendons, the the tissue is going to create more risk of injury than anything. In season, the role of strength training it's actually a lot less specific than the latter portion of the off-season period. In season, it's just, I don't want to lose muscle mass or as little as possible. I don't want to lose strength and I want to be injury-free. That's the goal. What you do off-season is what you do to improve your sport performance. What you do in-season is to stay in shape, avoid injury. That's it. Uh, last, last question I have for you here. Kind of along the lines of something you were saying before, and and you got me thinking about um, like Kieran and Flat has been on this show and talked about. I think Jake Jensen might have had the idea for this, but with the Strength Coach Network, like starting. I know we've talked about one by twenty, um, but they'll do like just they'll just give the players one set of twenty. They ride that as long as they can, and then when they they don't get it, then they go to one by fifteen. Then then when they don't go up, they go to one by ten, and then so they just keep going up like that. And I think about um, like just our easy strength two, two sets of five, and just. Yeah. Kind of like heparin stuff. Like where, if you had to, to say like a really simple, like super simple way to like just start and see what an athlete can do before we have to get complex training rolling. I know it's different for a lot of athletes, but do you have any preferred methods? Just that like block zero base. Let's get strong simply before we get into yeah. complex stuff. The, I the simplest method I use okay, for, for strength training is called the triple, uh, the triple progression method. Uh, it, it's similar to Epburn, but it, it less uh, less long term and less overly controlled or rigid. Basically, uh, I will pick, uh, let's say, a, a rep number. Let's say eight reps. Okay, so I'm, my goal is to do four sets of eight with the same load. Could be four sets, could be three sets. I normally don't go below three sets. The maximum I will go is six. But when I do six sets, there's almost nothing else in the session it, it, because again, the number of the, the amount of work you do on an exercise regulate how much work you do on the rest of the session. That's important. So uh, I will, let's say I do four sets of eight. My goal is to hit four sets of eight with the same weight. Okay. So, and I, I'm not allowed to add weight to the bar until I can get four sets of eight with the same weight with good form. If I do eight, eight, seven, six, the next week I need to keep the same weight. If I do eight, 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 seven, I progressed. I added reps, but I'm not enough to be allowed to add weight. Next week, I do eight, 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 eight. I can add weight on the next session. And you write that, as you mentioned, as long as possible. That's a double progression model. The triple progression model is what happens once you hit a point where you can no longer progress for eight. Then you go to six and you go double progression again. And when you can progress, you go down to four. Now, personally, I use eight, six, four in my training because I'm more fo- I'm more advanced and I'm more focused on the strength and hypertrophy. With more of a beginner athlete, we would go 10, eight, six for reps or 12, 10, eight for a real beginner, like a, a young kid with zero hypertrophy. So if someone is very advanced and actually does not want more muscle mass, we could go six, four, two for a three rep number. So we ride the six for as long as possible. We ride the four as long as possible. Then we ride the two as long as possible. Understanding how the double progression model works, of course. And once you can no longer progress, 
on that, then you would move on to more advanced method. But again, even if you're an advanced trainee, you can use that approach. That's what I'm doing myself. I'm doing six, four, two. I'm still at six for nine weeks now. I'm still progressing. Uh, sometimes you will, maybe you will have to switch after four weeks. It happened. But what I like with that approach is that it actually follows the body's natural adaptation rate. You only add weight once your body is really ready to add weight. Okay. Not because you did one very good set. You can sustain that performance for four sets. When you can, once you can do that, you are ready to add more weight and your reps might go down. Like eight, eight, seven, six. I get eight, 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 seven. So it takes you long enough to add weight to respect your natural rate of progression. Now you could do it if we want to like close a discussion with full circle with the with the, the, the complexes. Even me, for example, let's say I was training for an athletic reason, I would have one strength day which would use a triple progression model. It's really an auto-regulatory method because you only add weight when your body is ready for it. You only change your reps when your body is ready for it. The second day would be the complexes. And the third day would be either hypertrophy work or it would be power work depending on what I'm working. Very simple. Very simple. And, and personally, I believe in using, even though I'm still focused, I still want to like, look better naked. I very rarely do more than three or four exercises in workout. And oftentimes I only do two. I mean, again, it's the mentality of try to accomplish as much as possible with as few exercises as possible because you want to keep as much resources available as possible. I think that, and I don't hate bodybuilding. I mean, I've done it and I, and I train bodybuilders. I think the mentality of just trying to pile on more work might actually work for hypertrophy to some extent, but it's not what athletes need to do. Okay. It's not what they need to do. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, um, give them, uh, give them as much as they need, but not, you don't need to give yeah. them more than they need. And the problem is that athletes are young people who like to look good. So they are very easily seduced mm -hmm. into adding trash volume. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, in some sports, like it might help. Like if you have big biceps in football, it can be used to intimidate the opponent, I guess. <laughs> Even in sprinting, like Ben Johnson, uh, Charlie Francis was asked, why do you have ben, uh, ben Johnson work up to 425 on his bench? He said, well, it makes him feel stronger than everybody else. So when he's on the starting line, he will posture and feel stronger. Maurice Green was kind of the same way. So he, he would actually intimidate people just by having big shoulders and big arms before the races, and that gives you a psychological advantage. But normally, you want the muscle mass to be able to have the strength you need to have the power, basically. Okay. Muscle mass is one of the factors to make you stronger. Stronger is the foundation to increase power. Power is the foundation to increase speed and agility. Okay? So to some extent, increasing muscle mass might help you get faster. But only if you don't have enough muscle to have the strength necessary to increase power enough to boost speed and agility. That's what people need to understand. Of course, you have some position in some sports where added body weight will help you on the field. But besides football and rugby and maybe high hockey, it's not the majority of sports. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I had this fun. Um, I was watching a few hundred meter races earlier. Uh, this year and just trying to figure out who's going to win by just when they had the close-up of each person and you kind of see them kind of posturing around and you can yeah. like i think there's so much to do a study on that it's amazing and I, i'd love to get into that more 
but like what you're just saying, I, I just think that stuff's so cool. But for the time being, I, sadly, my hard drive is, is getting dangerously lower than I thought. And, uh, we'll have to get another podcast of the book sometime. I have a ton of other questions to ask you, but this is really cool today, Christian. I, I really appreciate your time and all your insight that you shared with awesome. us. Absolutely. That wraps up another show. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We appreciate you guys taking the time to be a part of this podcast learning journey. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating, review on iTunes, uh, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We totally appreciate that. Have yourself a good rest of your week. We'll see you at the next show.